And what I want to do this morning is follow up a bit with a discussion of what Scripture has to say about giving. Now, I have to confess that, that this is not an easy task for me because I don't like to talk about giving. Uh, it's not that I have anything against money. I like money as well as the next person. It's that I don't like to talk about giving money because I'm somewhat in reaction against the opinion that most people have in the world of churches. Uh, you may know what this is. Do you know what that is? That's a preacher's handshake. And uh, that's one example of the kind of bad humor that, that you hear about preachers and churches because uh, so often you, you see preachers begging for money on television or you hear them on radio programs or that seems to be what so many people think about the church. But in fact, the purpose of the church is to give to people not to be given to. John makes that very clear in his little book when he describes certain itinerant evangelists who went from place to place and uh, offered the gospel free of charge to people. And he says, we ought to support such as these because they went everywhere receiving nothing from non-Christians. And that's a good word. We have something to give. The gospel is something to be offered. And we gather here on Sunday morning not to extract money from each other, but to support and encourage and give to each other. And so it uh, always pains me a little bit to talk about money, but it's necessary because there is a balance in Scripture. Scripture talks about giving. And though I can't recall any message that uh, any of us up here have given over the past two years on giving, I think it's time to uh, do so. Because that's the balance that Scripture maintains. Now, I'd like to have you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I want to look at Paul's discussion of this issue. We're going to set aside our Matthew study just for this one week in order to, to take a look at, at this apostle's teaching on this subject. And let me explain a bit of background since we're breaking right into the middle of a book. It's sometimes difficult to know what's, uh, what's going on, what the historical background is. Uh, Paul's concern centers on the Jewish Christians in Palestine, and more particularly in Jerusalem. That was a group of people that were poverty-stricken. They had been so from the beginning. They were persecuted. They lost their jobs. They, their shops were being boycotted. They were being thrown out of schools where they were teaching. And times were tough simply because they were Christians. And uh, from the very start, this was a church that, uh, that suffered financially. When Paul went to Jerusalem to gain from the apostles their endorsement for his mission to the Gentiles, they, uh, they agreed that that was God's will for him. But they said, don't forget the poor. Now, they weren't thinking of the poor in general, but uh, specifically of the poor in Jerusalem. And uh, Paul says, I, that's the very thing I wanted to do, because Paul recognized that in general, these Gentile churches were more affluent, and they had the means to give, and they could provide for the support of these impoverished Christians in Jerusalem. So everywhere Paul went, he made collections for the poor. He traveled up through uh, Macedonia in his second missionary journey, cities like Berea and Thessalonica and, and Philippi, and he made uh, collections there and and then he appealed to the Corinthians uh, in southern Greece to take up a collection for these poor saints in Jerusalem. And evidently they had started to make a collection, but months went by and the whole thing just bogged down and the collection was not forthcoming. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians 
to deal with this issue, among others. And his point is, let's, uh, let's finish what we began. You started to take up this collection, now let's complete it. And that's where we pick up Paul's argument in chapter 8. Now, what Paul does uh, in this chapter is easy to follow. He first appeals to the example of the Macedonian Christians, and then he, uh, he exhorts the Corinthians to follow their example. Now, let's read the first five verses of chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, or the term is gift of God, the godlike gift which has been given among the churches of Macedonia. These would be the churches in Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica, churches that Paul had founded. That in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep bedrock is the term poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality, their open-heartedness. For I testify that according to their ability and contrary to their ability, literally, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of sharing in the ministry unto the saints. And normally it's the preachers who are begging, but here it's the church that's begging for the privilege of giving to these saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And that's the concept that underscores the entire paragraph. They did so out of obedience to God. Now, it's uh, interesting to observe that Paul's appeal is to a poverty-stricken church who gave to a poverty-stricken church. These people were poor. He refers to the fact that they were experiencing affliction and they themselves, he says, were in deep poverty. Now, there are several reasons why these Macedonian Christians were poverty-stricken. One was uh, is analogous to the situation in Jerusalem. As Christians, they were being ostracized and mistreated in various ways. They'd lost their jobs, and they were being persecuted simply because they were believers. And so they were financially in difficulty from that, uh, for, for that reason. The other reason is that the uh, Roman Empire had exploited the natural resources of this region. Macedonia at one point had been very wealthy, but uh, the Romans took over their gold and silver mines and taxed their copper and iron smelting business right out of existence and cut off all their trees to build their ships, and they had just ruined the country financially. But there's a third reason. For some reason, most of the Christians in this, these churches in Macedonia were lower class to begin with. They were slaves. There were many, many slaves. This was the first region in the Roman Empire proper to which uh, the gospel had been taken. And there were many slaves. Uh, they estimate that anywhere from a third to a half of the population were slaves during this time, and they responded to the gospel. Paul refers directly to the fact that uh, slaves were there and indirectly by by referring to their names. As you read through the New Testament, you find names like uh, Segundus and uh, Tertius and Quartus. Now, if you remember your high school Latin, you'll know those are not names, they're numbers. They're Latin ordinals. Second, third, and fourth. The uh, Romans didn't consider slaves people. They were just things, and they numbered them. And many of these uh, people had found their way into the church, not because the gospel has an appeal only to someone uh, of, of slave mentality, but because the church accepted them. They loved them. They, they saw them as people, not as things or numbers. 
And so they, they, were, they made up a large percentage of, of the church. Now, the interesting thing is that when Paul refers to an example of giving, he refers to a group of people who didn't have great resources. They were poor. They were slaves. They didn't have any money to give. And yet they gave. Paul says they gave according to their ability and even beyond their ability. Now, we're used to thinking that uh, you have to have a measure of wealth before you can give, that giving comes out of discretionary money. And, and when you have enough money to meet your needs as a family, then what's over and above that you can give? But Paul says that wasn't true of these Macedonian believers. They gave right out of their poverty as an act of obedience to the Lord. It's the same sort of thing that Jesus is talking about when he commends the widow who gave her two mites. The Lord was standing by the gate of the temple, and he saw people entering the temple, leaving their gifts behind, and many wealthy people gave large gifts. But this uh, poor widow came along, and perhaps she was a scrub woman, or she supported herself in, in some way, but her pay was not too good, and all she had was two mites, and she gave those to the Lord. And the Lord says, they gave out of their resources, she gave everything she had. Now, what Paul is telling us here is that, the, is that the amount of money we make or we have in our possession really has nothing to do with anything. It's God's will that we give, that we start at that point to give what we have. Now, of course, that's true of, of all of the Christian life. It goes beyond the mere fact of giving money. We know that's true of, uh, of character, Christian character. If we need love for someone, we, don't, we aren't expected to wait until we feel loving. The Lord says, love them. And then all of his resources come into play to make it possible for us to love. God doesn't wait for us to work up a measure of courage before we're called upon to make proclamation of our faith. He says, share it. Preach the gospel. And when we begin to make proclamation, then all the power that's necessary is brought to bear on our life to make it happen. It's always interesting to me that the apostles just don't psychologize with us very much about life. They don't say, well, you need to, you know, I understand because of your background, it's going to be difficult for you to love people. You've been, you were brought up in a threatening environment and it's caused you to withdraw and, and it'll take time for you to heal and, and when you are healed a little bit, then you can love. You know, the apostles just say, love one another, put away malice, put away greed, put away resentment, put away anger, stop doing those things. Because if we understand the gospel properly, our wills have been set free. We're not tyrannized by our past or our habits or our moods. If you get up in the morning and you're grumpy, Scripture says, be joyful. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Don't be grumpy. It's just that simple. Because when we choose righteousness, we have all the power of an infinite God to be whatever God has called us to be. That's the gospel, you see. And the same thing is true of money. I remember once walking into a dorm and talking to a group of students about sharing their faith. Exciting things were happening all over that campus, and a lot of students were opening up and getting very vocal about their faith, and people were meeting the Lord, and it was, it was really exciting to see it happen. And I, I pointed out that there wasn't uh, much witness in this particular dorm, and could I help in any way by setting up a team meeting or going door-to-door -door with students to share the gospel? And this fellow said to me, well, this is, we're, in, we're working on that. We're in the process of writing a position paper. And I said, well, for goodness sake, you have the position paper. It's already written. The apostles say, go into all the world and make proclamation of the good news. So don't sit around and write papers. Let's get rolling. And that's the way 
the Lord approaches all of life through us. Venture yourself. Put yourself on the line. Make a choice. You see, Paul makes this very clear. They did this by the will of God. It was through the will of God they were able to give themselves to the Lord and then to the apostles in this way. That is, to make money available to the apostles so they could distribute it to the saints in Jerusalem. How did it start? They said, well, God wants us to give. And so we'll give. We don't have any money, but we'll give anyway. And then God will make possible the resources to follow through. You see what Paul is saying? And he amplifies in his final words to the uh, church in 2 Corinthians, final words regarding money, in chapter 9, verse 6, when he says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you, always having all sufficiency in everything, may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. You see what Paul is saying here? If you give, then God will give you more money to give. He does not say if you give, then God will enrich you. I don't know how that came into present-day evangelical preaching. I have scoured the Bible looking for that promise. I wish I could find it. It isn't there. Nowhere are we promised that God will make us wealthy if we give. If we give $100, we'll find $1,000 in the mail tomorrow with, with which we can go out and buy a new snow machine or something. And that's not the way it works. be nice if it did. But Paul's point here is that as you give, God will give you in abundance for every good deed. You can keep on giving. And then he cites uh, a portion of one of the Psalms, Psalm 112. He, that is the generous man, scatters abroad. He gives to the poor. His righteousness, and specifically here, his giving abides forever. You see? If you give, God will give you more so you can go on giving forever. And so he says in verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness and you will be enriched in everything for all liberality. Not merely enriched, but enriched for liberality. So you can share and give, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. And as he goes on to say, it not only benefits the saints, but it also results in God receiving glory. You see what Paul is saying? We have to venture ourselves. We have to take a step of obedience. In all, That's true of all of life. Not just giving money. But in giving of our energy or our time, we think, you know, if I just, you know, when I have a little bit more time, Lord, then I'll be more hospitable. I'll open my home and I'll have people over. But if you wait till you have more time, you'll never have enough time. Or we think, uh, if I have more energy, then I can get out and do more. But if you wait till you have more energy, you'll never do anything. No, you open your heart and you open your home and you give yourself to people and the time and the energy and the, the strength and the wisdom and the physical resources and the financial resources and everything that you need then is, is brought to bear. See, all of God's resources are available. The key is we have to venture ourselves. I was, uh, I read an article this past week 
by a fellow named Paul Thompson. I don't know who he is. I've never heard of him before. But it's called, Where Have All the Heroes Gone? And he suggests that we substitute for the word hero, the word uh, celebrity, because hero doesn't fit anyone anymore. He says uh, we, we ought to drop from our vocabulary the word hero. We now talk about celebrities. They are per- these are persons to whom we ascribe no special virtue, whose talents are not of primary interest, who we do not think are generous beyond us, or selfless beyond us, or dedicated beyond us, or even sacrificial beyond us. They are merely popular and paid beyond us. And then he goes on to say, preoccupied with ourselves, we whiffle away our lives with no real purpose or strenuousness. Who's for tennis? In its courts we will serve at least. We will ride to paradise on a golf cart. Absorbed in ourselves, we become slaves to things. Shopping malls are the shrines of our age. Little in them is essential to our survival, our work, our health. But we must have that when we see it, though we don't need it. We scour the world for a gift to the man who has everything. We spend hours in department stores wondering if we want something. If we really need it or wanted it, we would have no doubts. We have become the spoiled children of the Western world. My grandmother used to say to me, always do what you're afraid to do. We do not say such things to our children these days. If they're afraid, we cosset them. If there are tears of pain in their eyes, as they attempt their own peak, we try to smooth the way for them. We have bred a generation of young people committed to coping and survival, pampered so by our surroundings. Can anyone emerge from among us dedicated to a cause outside himself? It's a good word, and he doesn't really have any uh, solution. But the solution, as we see it in Scripture, is to do the will of God. When we start taking steps of obedience, then we're capable of doing heroic things. That's That's the argument of Hebrews 11. What was the greatness of these men? Well, they simply did the will of God. They obeyed. They didn't wait for the reserves up front, the resources up front. They acted, and then the resources came. Now, that's the first uh, principle, I think, that Paul wants to teach us. By example, these Macedonians gave over their heads. Now, the second point that he wants us to know is that giving ought to be out of our hearts. And that's what follows in the appeal in verses 6 and following. Consequently, we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. I'm reading verse 6 here. Titus was sent as Paul's emissary to uh, Corinth to uh, convey the money to the believers in Jerusalem. He had gone once and been turned back. He was sent again to complete what Paul calls here this gracious work, the collection for the saints. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness or vigorous activity and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. This uh, church in Corinth was an unusually gifted church, not only financially but in terms of spiritual assets as well. As Paul uh, mentions in his first letter to the Corinthian church, they were rich in teaching resources. They had Paul and Apollos and Peter and others that administered in that city. And uh, they didn't come behind, Paul says, in any spiritual gift. It would be like a church today that had uh, as pastors Chuck Swindoll and Dr. Mitchell and and the uh, chairman of evangelism would be Bill Bright and Luis Palau and Billy Graham and the 
uh, minister of administration would be Ted Ingstrom, you know, and they were just just wonderfully gifted in teaching uh, resources. And the people were instructed and they were doing vital things. He says, you're earnest, there's vital activity going on. And everybody was well taught and they'd all read uh, H. Publius Lindsay's latest book, The Late Great Roman Empire. And, and they were up in their eschatology and raring to go. And Paul says, you're full of love as well. However, there is a practical side to love and it involves giving money to these destitute saints in Jerusalem. Now, let's get on with the program, he says. The same sort of argument that James offers when he says, uh, how can you say the love of Christ dwells in you if a man comes to your door and he's hungry and, and uh, freezing and you, you turn him away without food and clothing and you say, God bless you. That's not love. Love expresses itself in tangible gifts to people who have needs. And that's what Paul means. When he says you abound in all these other things, in faith and utterance, that is the word, the preached word, in knowledge and in all earnestness, and you and you are loving. But now let's uh, let's see some tangible result of that love. He says, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others, the sincerity of your love also, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. You see what he's doing? Uh, earlier he'd used the example of the Macedonians as poverty-stricken people who gave. Here he uses the example of the Lord who, though he was rich, became poor. He impoverished himself for our sake. Uh, I remember once sitting in on a conversation a friend of mine was having with another young Christian, and this... Uh, this young man was struggling with the concept of the deity of Christ. He just uh, he found it difficult to prove from the New Testament that Jesus Christ was God. And unfortunately, the apostles don't make any specific statements to that effect. They don't say, Jesus is God. It's inferred both by, direct, by statements and by references to the Old Testament, but it's difficult to find direct statements. Now, the churches believe this from the very beginning, and it's clear that's what the apostles are saying. But uh, some people have trouble uh, believing it because the statements are a little bit inferential. So that, this, that was the problem with this young man. He's well-versed in Scripture, but he was just struggling with this issue. My friend tried a number of different approaches and uh, got nowhere. And finally, he reached in his pocket, and he took out his little New Testament, and he read this passage, First, Second Corinthians 8 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. And he looked up from his New Testament and he looked in his face and he said, tell me, when was Jesus rich? And you could see the light dawn in his eyes. Because if you start thinking through Jesus' life, from the moment of his birth, he was poor, dirt poor. And he lived all of his life that way. He had to borrow a coin to pay the temple tax. He, uh, the only possession he had was the coat on his back. He lived in a cave most of the time in Nazareth. They, they think they found uh, the, the home of Mary and Joseph in Nazareth. It's a cave down in the ground. And uh, he, as he put it, the foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was really poor. And the question is, when was he rich? Well, as God before he laid aside his deity, or his use of his deity. He never laid aside 
his godhood. He was always God. But he laid aside the independent use of his deity. He became a man. And he impoverished himself for our sake. And so you see, this is Paul's second appeal. He not only appeals to obedience to the word of God, but a response to the love of Christ. So they were to give not only over their heads because God had said to, but to give out of their heart because that's the pattern which the Lord himself established, you see? Now what Paul does here, I think, is open the, the springs of motivation because he's, what he says is that giving essentially is an act of love for people. You give, as Paul puts it uh, in terms of the Macedonian believers, for ministry to people. And therefore, we ought to ask ourselves the question, anytime we give, to what extent does this serve the people of God? Does it help them grow? Does it cause people to grow up to likeness in Jesus Christ? Does it cause the gospel to go out where it's not proclaimed? You see, that's the criterion that we ought to, to invoke each time. To what extent does this contribute towards service to saints? We don't want to give just to build a monument to someone's ego. You know, Paul's not appealing to build a cathedral in Jerusalem. That's not the point, or a church building. He wants to serve the saints in Jerusalem, and love demands that we give, not only of our time and energy and, and wisdom, but also of our, of our financial means. So the question is, why are we building a building? <laughs> why not just give the money to the poor? Well, because we've come to the conclusion that we can best serve the needs of the body of Christ by a a more adequate building. We've discovered that our facilities are really inadequate. We didn't want to build a building. When I came here two years ago, I told the elders, the last thing I want to do is build a building. Let's make do with what we have. Let's meet in homes. Let's meet in a warehouse. Anything but build a building because we don't want to invest money in things. We want to put our time and energy into people. But we've come to the... And even as, as recent as a month or so ago, we were thinking again. We rethought the whole thing. Should we try to build anything? Let's don't. Let's stay with what we have. But we've got problems here with a busy street and our children. and We're crowded out in our children's facilities and inadequate uh, space on every side. And we just can't do what we feel God wants us to do through this body. And so the building is here... Simply for that purpose. It's not ornate. Most of you have seen the plans. It's very simple and inexpensive. We don't want to put up something that's tacky and it's going to be a blight on the landscape over there. But, but you know, within reason, uh, we want it to be attractive, but not ornate. It's not our plan. Very simple, functional, multi-use, so that we can keep that building in use, train people, send them out into the community to accomplish the great things for God that we believe the Lord has in mind for this body of believers. You know, there's no end to what God can do in this city and in this state and in, and in the Pacific Northwest through this body of believers. Some tremendous things are happening. Gary mentioned the uh, college ministry and the large number of kids that are coming to the Lord through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ and Forum there. We want to be a part of that, see it grow. And uh, many of us are concerned about the high school crowd here in Boise, and we want to give help to young life and also move in in some way in these schools and begin to touch some of these high school people who really have never heard the gospel in its purity. And uh, there's the legislature. And there's a reason why we're here in Boise. It's the capital. And that legislature is wide open, and there's a movement now among a few men 
who were starting a low-key, man-to-man, woman-to-woman ministry with our legislators to share the gospel with them and to reach right into the political center of our state and begin to change things as God changes lives. The center has begun, and uh, we did that not to compete with other teachers and teaching or institutions, but we really do believe that training takes place best in the context of a local church. That's, you know, the scripture says that the leadership of a church is given to that body to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And we feel the work of the ministry can best be done through training right, right through our local body rather than sending people off to another institution. So we started the center and God miraculously brought the funds. And Brian and Fisher is here at no cost to us as a congregation. And the, the interns are here at no cost to us, working in various areas of ministry, eight of them now, full-time, here at Cole, supported by others, involved in our ministry, and we want to see that expanded. That's God's doing. We want to transplant not only exposition and teaching, but train teachers so they can move into other churches alongside pastors and help people grow to maturity. And as many of you know, for at least a year and a half, I've wanted to see the Lord establish a, a mission to mountain people here in this area. You go back into the into the back country and you find all these little communities back there, Elk City and Dixie and and uh, Placerville and Grimes uh, the area around Grimes Pass and New Centerville, uh, Stanley, and there's no Christian witness whatever. No outspoken Christian. We can't even find Christians in some of those towns. And uh, I'm all for overseas missions, and we want to be involved to the hilt in sending people overseas, but uh, we've got a mission field right up here on top of the hill that we haven't tapped. Some of you saw the fine article in the Statesman yesterday about Rufus and Ann Cole and the great ministry that they've performed up there over the years. But you know, they're the last two missionaries in that, in that organization. The last two. And they're elderly, and they can't get back in there anymore. And here's this vast, unreached area. Well, let me tell you something that happened just this past week. Those of you in my Tuesday night class heard it, so it's a little redundant, but I want the rest of you to know what I think God is doing. About a month uh, or two months ago, uh, we had a man apply uh, for an internship here, Frank and his wife, Karen Benskin. And we had heard of Frank before when I was at Peninsula Bible Church, and uh, he applied to come here and as an intern, and w- Carolyn and I had them over to the house for dinner to get, get to know Frank a little better, and I asked Frank what he wanted to do with his life. So I want to plant churches in uh, primitive areas. And I said, well, that's very interesting, Frank, because he had no idea that anyone had been thinking along these lines. So I just filed that away and decided that the Lord wanted us to pursue it in his own time. But uh, the idea kept growing. And and two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, I put a couple of letters in the mail to people that I knew or knew of that I knew had interest in this kind of a mission and asked if they would be interested in supporting it. The day I put the letters in the mail, I ran into a friend of mine, sort of a coincidental way, one of these coincidences that the Lord sets up. and, And I told him what we were doing, and I said, do you know this particular individual? Oh, yes. He says, we're good friends. As a matter of fact, we're uh, going to have coffee this afternoon at 4. Can I do anything for you? So I told him what we were thinking and brought some material over to his office, and, and he talked to this individual, and he called me that night just before I went to bed, and he said, well, you're funded. 
And I said, what? And he said, you're funded. Just let us know how much money you want. And I've never had this happen to me before. Usually it's the other way around. You start a ministry and then the Lord provides the funds and now we've got the funds and the ministry isn't even going yet. But we have a missionary and we have the funds to put a missionary on the field. Well, the next afternoon, this individual called again and said, Say, do you know anything about Stanley? Is there any, any possibility of starting a church in Stanley? And I said, I don't know. They don't have a pastor? And he said, no, I don't think so. So I called the mayor of Stanley and I said, I hear you don't have a pastor. Do you want one? He said, yeah, I think so. <clears throat> he said, we got a little church up here, but uh, we don't have a pastor. Sure. And he gave me the name of, of another individual who was the chairman of the board of directors of that little chapel. Some of you have seen that little log cabin up there at Stanley. So I called him, and he was gone, out of town for a week. But I uh, started talking to his wife, and she was a delightful, chatty lady, and we were... She lives over in Jerome, and we talked for probably 15 or 20 minutes. And, and I thought, well, I'll just tell her what we're thinking. So I told her about uh, the young man that we had and the money that had been raised and would they be interested in having a pastor up there. And there was just long silence. And I thought, uh-oh, I've, I've wrecked the whole thing now. And then she said, and this is exactly what she said, she said, do you know what I've been doing? I said, no, what? She said, I've been walking the floor praying that God would send us a pastor in Stanley. And as it turns out, her father was a Methodist minister who for years rode a circuit through Warren and Yellow Pine and Big Creek and all those remote towns back in there and had a ministry going. She's a Christian lady who loves the Lord. She's had a concern for years about the Stanley area because, as you know, it's a tough little town and there's just no witness whatever in that town. And I said, well, I think we got a man. Would you like to meet him? She said, we sure would. And the next day, another man from Stanley called and said, can you all fly up next week and talk? We're ready to go. And the thing just fell together. See, it's not costing us anything. It's not something we had to generate out of the body. And we didn't have to plead for money. God provided the funds. He provided the missionary. He provided the place. And we're not sure what's going to happen. We haven't the foggiest idea. Because as Paul puts it, my God can exceed your wildest expectations. And I just see that we as a church are right on the edge of a vital, penetrating ministry to this city and to the whole community. And we need to get this building built and get on with it. I don't have to worry about the funds and, and uh, put our money into a ministry that will really last, have an impact on many lives. Well, let's pray, shall we? Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the surprises that you bring into our life, those unexpected things that happen that show us that, that you know we're here and you know what our needs are and you're committed to meeting those needs. We just need the faith to venture ourselves, Father, and the willingness to act in obedience to your word though we don't see what the next step will entail. And we would like to see this money raised and this building paid off and this building become a center from which we go out into this community and throughout the world to touch lives in a significant way. And we just uh, want you to be glorified in us and make ourselves available to you for whatever purpose you see fit. Train us and teach us 
to be heroic in our deeds. We just want to thank you for all that you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen.